0: will be in this corner over here.
1: From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. All right. This week, the Vermont House right. took up a bill that would protect unrestricted access to abortion in Vermont.
0: Yeah. We have a bill in front of us today that, it, you know, it's about just simply codifying existing practice and, you know, protecting individual decisions in healthcare.
1: This is House Speaker Mitzi Johnson.
0: I think that's pretty straightforward. <laughs>
1: Johnson's chamber debated this bill for two full days, and it passed by a wide margin. The final vote was 106 to 36. But Republican lawmakers and some members of the public continue to oppose this bill because it lacks any restrictions on abortion access.
2: The origin of this legislation is a concern that with a now conservative majority in the U.S. Supreme Court, that Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Court decision that sort of guaranteed abortion rights in this country, could be overturned.
1: Xander Landon has been covering this bill for VT Digger.
2: And we're seeing legislatures, not only in Vermont, but across the country with you know, Democratic majorities, taking steps to enshrine abortion rights and access to reproductive health care into state law. So that's what we're seeing in Vermont with this legislation, H57. As written, abortion policy experts are saying that this would be likely the most expansive protection of reproductive health services in state law in in the United States and throughout the country.
1: So before we get into what happened this week, I I feel like we should acknowledge that we are two guys talking about what is essentially a women's health issue. Why were you following this debate?
2: Well, I am a VT Diggers' political reporter, and so I follow sort of the issues that are the most controversial and political in the state house. This legislative session has been going on for a couple of months now, and this has become very quickly the biggest issue of this session. What did this debate show us about the
1: politics of the legislature right now.
2: In November, Democrats picked up a bunch of seats in the House of Representatives. They already had a majority, but now they have an even bigger majority. And that gives them even more power to push through their agenda. Democrats, you know, wrote this bill, which they say is essentially just codifying the state's current abortion practices into state law and protecting them and making sure that a federal overturn of Roe v. Wade would not affect those rights
0: it all becomes if Roe v. Wade falls the the landscape gets gets very shaky. We have seen courts in some jurisdictions start to restrict existing rights and freedoms and we want to make sure that future women in Vermont have the same options and protections that women have had for the last 46 years here.
2: The key players were really the House Speaker, Mincy Johnson, and the judiciary, House okay, Judiciary Committee chair, F- Maxine F- Grad, in- they have been facing criticism from okay. citizens and from Republicans saying that this legislation goes too far. The concern is that if we say that there, there are no qualifications and no restrictions to when a woman can seek an abortion, that women are going to start having late-term abortions, abortions later and later into pregnancy. And what they have said... You know, the way that they've sold this proposal again and again is by saying that this doesn't change the way that abortions will be delivered in Vermont. It only enshrines the current practice and the current policy as it relates to abortion access into state law.
0: If people are unhappy with what is currently available, they're going to be equally unhappy with with this law. Um, we have asked medical providers and our legal staff and various lawyers what could be allowed that is not currently allowed? And the answer is nothing. It does not change anything. It does not change a thing.
2: Jill Krawinski, the Democratic House Majority Leader, you know, framed the Democrats' position on the floor very well, basically saying that this is about securing rights that women in Vermont have had since Roe v. Wade in the event that the decision was overturned at the federal level. This legislation secures Vermonters' rights. I believe it is a very deeply personal decision of whether and when and how to become a parent, And there should be no shame. There should be no shame attached to whatever she decides. The way that we saw the majority play out is we saw them put this bill on the table. We saw a lot of Republicans attempting to moderate this proposal, to, to dial it back, to amend it so that there would be a certain point at which abortion would be illegal or prohibited in the state.
3: Compromise is, is what we strive for and that's what I've tried to do in this bill to satisfy those people that are pro-choice, giving a woman a choice up to
2: essentially 24 weeks. There were and two we amendments, that, for example, that would have prohibited abortion after 24 weeks or six months, which is the point at which a lot of medical providers say that a fetus is generally viable. Abortion, I think it's important that we deal with all the issues involved in this, and one of them is um, making sure that we
3: don't have late-term abortions for no medical in providers.
2: We also saw attempts by Republicans to make abortion access in Vermont more restrictive than it is now. We saw attempts to require minors to have to notify or get the permission of their parents to, to have an abortion, which, under current law, isn't a requirement. We saw them attempt to give a fetus personhood rights under state law. There were about a dozen amendments that would have either dialed back the Democratic position, the Democratic bill, or make re- abortion even more restrictive than it is. And every single attempt was shot down overwhelmingly. Republicans never even got close the reason that we're doing this is out of some fear of something that's going to happen in the future. And I don't know why, where that that bright line is that uh, we have to be concerned about this, but not that. I think that Republicans and some Democrats were ultimately upset that there wasn't any compromise on this legislation. You know, one Republican representative called this, quote, fear legislation, that that we're legislating these protections based on concerns, hypothetical
0: Um, concerns. secondly, Madam Speaker, I find it a little unique that we would choose to uh, make something legal in law because it won't ever happen.
2: And I think that it's important also to note here that Republicans that I spoke with, they're largely pro-choice. Most of them don't want to restrict a woman's access to abortion in a major way. They, but they were concerned that this bill would sort of open up access too broadly, and they wanted to see some provision that would, as the House Minority Leader Patty McCoy told me, put bumpers on access. Not make it harder, in all cases, for a woman to get a, an abortion, but ensure that abortions in the later stages of pregnancy could not happen.
1: On Thursday, while House members were debating the last few amendments on this bill, I drove to the University of Vermont Medical Center, the largest hospital in the state, and I talked to a medical official there who told me there's something lost when abortion procedures are discussed in the abstract. People don't take this lightly, and I think
3: that anybody who believes that uh, women come into this with a cavalier attitude doesn't understand the process. That has not been my experience. And I think that understanding the social circumstances and the conditions with which each person comes is lost in the the
1: communications that are going on. This is Dr. Ira Bernstein. He's the chair of obstetrics and gynecology at the UVM Medical Center. He's worked there for almost 30 years. So I
3: completed my residency training in 1987, and I completed my fellowship training here in complicated pregnancies in 1990. And I've been here on the staff since then uh, as a faculty member. Why did you choose to focus on women's health? I I came into medical school not at all oriented towards women's health, as probably most males who were in their early 20s. Um, This wasn't a career that I had projected for myself. Um, My experience during the course of my medical education, um, including specific what we call clerkships, which are exposures to the routine uh, subspecialties within medicine, which is part of medical school, I just found that a calling in obstetrics in particular and was really excited by my interactions there. When you say a calling, what is that what does that look it like? Just, it, it, it's more a feeling than a look. I think that it's about where you're comfortable, the people that you're interacting with how you feel when you're experiencing the clinical care environment, birth's a pretty exciting place to be. And I think for most people, it's hard to believe that everybody doesn't choose to go into obstetrics and medicine (laughs) since birth is such an amazing uh, thing to be involved with for couples. And I have to say that that's really what drove me primarily, I think.
1: Gotcha.
3: Maybe an obvious question, but have you performed abortions? I have. I don't know that it's necessarily an obvious question because I think that while we participate in training and one of our obligations as a training program for residents is to have a abortion service that's opt out so that people can choose not to participate, but we must provide that as part of our calling for having a residency uh, as a clinical practice that wouldn't necessarily have been part of my practice or it wouldn't
1: absolutely have been part of my practice. It might not have been. As somebody who's performed this procedure, there's a lot of conversation about it in politics, kind of in the abstract. How do you describe the reality of, of what an abortion procedure is actually like?
3: Well, I mean, I think the reality is the interaction with the patient and that patients come to you with a a concern clinically. For most of my career, the abortions that I participated in were what would be considered fetal or medical indications. These were not predominantly elective. That was just the, the choice that I made and the ones that I was involved with. So in those environments... The vast majority of those women had babies that had significant medical problems that they believe would be burdensome to the children themselves and to the families and were making a choice that they didn't want to continue those pregnancies. And my responsibility as a provider of care was to say, I can help you with this and um, help that process
1: along. What's it like for you as the provider? I mean, when somebody comes to you and they're in that situation, how do you move forward in that?
3: Well, everyone's different, right? Every interaction is about you interacting with a person. All of them have different stories. All of them come to you with different stories. And so every, every time you discuss uh, this choice that a family's making or that a woman's making, you recognize the unique elements of that choice. And some you can relate to, and some are harder to relate to. Um, But I think that each time you try to support the people and provide the care that they're requesting.
1: When I was setting up this interview, I was told not to use the term late-term abortions, and that it's a term that uh, you kind of bristle at. I wonder if you can explain why.
3: Because it it doesn't mean anything to us. So in in pregnancy, we talk about term and preterm. Term, Term for us, is a, a gestational age period, which starts at 37 weeks of pregnancy and goes to 42 weeks late term for us is beyond 41 weeks we call that late term in the nomenclature of pregnancy management no one that i have ever met does terminations late term meaning that they do them beyond the due date of 41 plus weeks we have never done anything close to that here in terms of gestational age and it is uh, at least for our institution misleading to imply that we would been we participate
1: in that those terminations at those gestational ages Around the recent debate here in Vermont, there's been a lot of conversation, if not about late term as you just defined it, but kind of third trimester abortions, kind of late in pregnancy abortions. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that actually looks like if somebody is in their third trimester, a patient decides that for whatever reason she wants to terminate that pregnancy, if that happened Today, a patient came yeah. to you, what, what would so happen? So first, we almost never do the third, third trimester
3: terminations at this institution. That would be an extraordinarily rare event. And in, because if we think about gestational age, and we talk about it in weeks as obstetricians, so the third trimester generally starts around 26 weeks. And I can't recall a termination we've done beyond 26 weeks. On occasion, we do induce labors at that point in time, uh, which has consequences to the fetuses because we believe that we are acting in the best interest of the mother. And there are diseases that happen during the course of pregnancy where moms get very sick and they can be lethal diseases, they can kill women. Um, And so we will sometimes choose to end a pregnancy in the third trimester, and those pregnancies are ended As a result, they're trying to save a mother's life, and those can result in the death of a newborn, but we manage those pregnancies and those deliveries with the goal of survival, not with the goal of not having the child survive. The goal is survival for everybody. Sometimes at those late gestational ages, children die because they're premature and they can't survive on their own. The more common gestational age windows that we talk about around termination services are those that are beyond 20 weeks, which is about halfway through the pregnancy. Those are typically considered later um, terminations. We do engage in those. Um, and we have gestational age thresholds where we discuss different kinds of uh, ways in which we manage the
1: the requests for that. When you talk about a process to kind of review and kind of assess those different situations, what does that mean? What does that look like? So um, we uh,
3: have historically had a practice. It's not; It has never been a policy, so it's not a written policy, but it's a practice. And that practice has been that For women who approach us up to uh, 22 weeks and six days, which has sort of been one of our thresholds for viability, in other words, this is a gestational age at which children cannot yet live independently. Up until that gestational age, we have allowed individual providers in association with an individual department to decide about supporting a request for termination. So a woman comes in at those gestational ages, then we say, okay, do we have the skills to provide that? Can we do that? Is it a reasonable request? And that's all decided within the doctor-patient relationship and inside the department. At 23 weeks and beyond, our practice has been that there needs to be a wider consideration. And remember that we're talking about not just what some people would consider elective terminations or terminations by choice. These are also with maternal and fetal indications. Mom's life is at risk. Baby has a bad birth defect or including genetic abnormalities. Once we get to 23 weeks of gestation for all comers, we um, require a broader review of the request. And that means we include our pediatricians, our neonatologists who specialize in newborn care, hospital ethicists, geneticists, OB providers, Um, and our chief medical officer, all of who can review the details of the case and make a decision whether it's reasonable to
1: proceed. So those are the players involved. I'm I'm interested to hear that there are ethicists involved there. It seems like everyone else in that chain is specifically uh, coming at it from a medical perspective. I'm curious where the ethics come in. Like, what are the considerations being discussed there? So I'm not an
3: ethicist. I, I have been at the table for these discussions. I think the issue of what is the request based on? In other words, is it an elective request? Is it based on certain kinds of um, malformations or birth defects that are anticipated? What are the long-term consequences of those birth defects to the family and to, uh, to the child themselves? Um, there's a balance there because we have a wide range of possibilities for what kinds of abnormalities may exist. They may be lethal abnormalities where none of the children are likely to survive and which pose a risk to the mom. And that may be beyond 23 weeks. And then the answer is pretty clear. But it all may also be an abnormality where the mom isn't necessarily at risk. And there's some chance for survival. And that survival may be associated with a 50% risk of neurologic injury, a 90% risk of neurologic injury. All of those have to be balanced. And there's value judgments that are placed, placed on those pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that an ethicist can help to bring those to light um, and help comment on um, the balance issues. Why does this facility not provide elective procedures at that stage? So I didn't say we don't provide elective procedures at that stage. I've told you that there's a process by which those procedures are evaluated. It is uncommon for us to provide elective procedures beyond that. And I can't recall us having done that, but it is not something that we rule out as a matter of routine. I I, I think it's plausible that we would consider that. But each of our providers also has a moral guide and a, and a conscience about how they proceed. And I think the balance, when you think about independent viability, when children can survive on their own, independent of the mother, changes the balance a little bit for some of our providers. And so the likelihood that Someone would proceed with a purely elective termination, meaning that a, a woman's choice without any evidence of, of ongoing threat to the mother or the child, um, it, there's a different balance that goes on as gestational age advances. I don't think any, and it's true for moms too. I mean, this is not just the providers who are balancing this off. I think it's true for moms too. So every individual provider has to make a determination as to how they want to support or not
1: support those independent choices. What exactly do you mean by a different balance? Like what are the, how well, do the factors change?
3: So, I mean, we read in the news that the law that's before the, our legislature would allow a termination at four, you know, a due date that somebody could end the pregnancy. I can't imagine an environment in which any of the providers in my institution at this place would do that. I, I don't believe that any of them would see that as a um, an appropriate or um, defensible position relative to the balance of what this child's independent life may be in the absence of any you know, other anomalies relative to the mom. Mm -hmm. Because we can induce labor and end the pregnancy, but not necessarily end the life of the child at 40 weeks gestation. At 23 weeks gestation, that's a very different balance, right? At 23 weeks gestation, the chances of survival may be 5% or 10% for the child with a 90% risk of neurologic injury long-term. That has different implications for the child's life. So those are the kinds of issues that you balance off as you think about different gestational ages.
1: So you're saying chance of survival is really kind of a, a key number? In- well, I would say that it has played a
3: role in where we defined the need for a, a broader consultation, right? That, that Institutionally, we've used that as a guidepost.
1: I know one of the sort of hypotheticals that's being thrown around in this debate is this sort of hypothetical that down the line, maybe UVM has fairly strict standards around that, but that... Other doctors outside the system might come to Vermont, set up shop, and not kind of follow those same standards. From where you're sitting, does that seem like something that could happen? So, recognizing that there is no restriction on that today,
3: right? That a a provider could come into the state today and do all whatever they wanted relative to termination care because there are no laws in place. The idea that the law that's been proposed um, passes, I don't see how that changes the existing status. Can I? Imagine that happenings, one could imagine anything, right? Anything's possible. Do I see that as likely? I don't see that as likely. Do I see that as an institutional likelihood? I think the chance of that is zero. We are not going to change our practice if the law were to pass as it's currently structured. We will continue to do what we are doing because we have internal guidance That um, we've all agreed to, to date, that says this is the way we want to practice. I won't be here forever. Someone else will come in, they may have different ideas and thoughts about how all
1: of this should work out. Uh, I won't be part of that discussion. Right, that is something I'm curious about. I mean, how, as ideas about these sorts of things evolve over time, how do those practices and policies evolve along with them? So it's changed a little bit over time
3: with the presence or absence of board guidance. The board guidance was pretty clear and prior to the board dropping any guidance in this area, the department chair of OBGYN had a lot of latitude. With the elimination of that policy, this has now become an institutional policy, which is owned at the chief medical officer position. The chief medical officer then has the owns the practice, the policy which we're developing, uh, you know, a formal written policy, and it will apply to all healthcare services. Similarly. Once again, that's a, while we will establish guidelines for today and for tomorrow, and over the course of time, these things can evolve and other chief medical officers, um, other physicians can think of these things in different ways and may choose to provide different kinds of guidelines
1: and set up different rules and regulations. You know, one of the things that it does seem like this law would change in a way, It, in terms of when you're looking at these sort of like hypothetical future scenarios, it does put a lot more burden on you, essentially, or on just kind of the, the medical landscape of Vermont to make the decisions about how termination care works. Well, in the well state. I mean,
3: I got to say, that's my job. I'm a obstetric and gynecologic provider. I make decisions about health care every day in my interaction with patients. That's what we do. We help women get optimal care in any number of areas. This is one of the areas where we do that. You know, you've drawn a distinction between termination services and all the other things we do. But for us, it's part of the the care that we provide for women. Um, I don't see that as a problem. I, I think that we're well equipped to help women make these calls um, in the doctor-patient
1: relationship um, and to provide those services safely. There's no area where you would want any kind of. Narrowing from the I, state law, I do not want any need. Guidelines? I do
3: not need government, nor do I think it's particularly helpful for government to help provide guidelines for clinical care. As I've mentioned earlier, we have provided some internal guidelines and and, and standards that we live to because we believe they are correct, and we will continue to do that. Again, for me individually, it doesn't matter if the state law changes; our practice will not change in the short
1: term. Xander, what happens next with this legislation?
2: Well, now it heads to the Senate where I don't think anyone has any doubt that it will pass quickly and with almost unanimous support. The Senate leader, Tim Ash, has pledged this session to be also introducing an amendment to the Constitution, Vermont's Constitution, that would additionally enshrine abortion access into law. Because an amendment takes longer to put into place. This law is actually meant to serve as sort of a run-up to that. So we're all expecting pretty fast and broad support for this in the Senate. Where there's a little bit of uncertainty is the governor's office. Governor Phil Scott has said that he's waiting to weigh in on this legislation until it gets to his desk. He wants Senate. to see what the legislature yeah, but, uh, does. But I'm, I'm watching, uh, but it, it's, a,
0: it's a conversation that they need to have first uh, before I weigh in on that.
2: Which would lead one to think that He also wants to see some sort of provision in place that dials it back a little bit. He has said time and time again that he is pro-choice, that he supports a woman's right to abortion. But the fact that he isn't coming out right away and saying, I will support this bill like the Democrats have, would lead one to think that he is waiting to see whether Democrats will put something to change the legislation from its current position to make it a little different. So now we wait and see. So now we wait and see. And because this came out so early in the House, I suspect that it's going to be a couple weeks in the Senate, it's going to pass, and the governor's going to have to make a decision on it. It would be hard to imagine him vetoing this legislation as someone who is pro-choice. I don't think he wants to restrict a woman's access to abortion at all. It's going to be sort of the details for him. That's going to be what he's looking at.
1: Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much. You can find Xander's reporting on the abortion debate at vtdigger.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast to get new episodes delivered to your phone or computer as soon as they're released. Just search for The Deeper Dig and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague to check it out. We used music this week from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from The Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.